Welcome to a special DOD to AEC episode of Inspiring People and Places, where throughout the month of November, we are interviewing veterans across the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industries. As always, our goal is to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. But more importantly this month, our goal is to highlight career paths of those who served in our military and continue to make an impact after military service in our industry. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA, a service-disabled veteran-owned small business focused on advising public and private clients with strategy, planning, program management, and construction management support services. Allow me to introduce today's guest. Before we get to today's guest, I, I want to take the time here on November 1st. As you heard in the intro, this month we are doing a special DOD to AEC um, segment. If the NFL can do the salute to service, MCFA and inspiring people in places can do our, our own version of that. Department of Defense to Architect Engineering and Construction, really with an effort to highlight a bunch of different career paths for veterans to our industry. We see a lot of transferable skills in veterans, but in addition to transferable skills of, of leadership and management and project management, people, the people skills, there's a lot of technical experiences around either engineering, construction, planning, logistics that are, that are all required in our industry. So throughout the month, all of our guests have served in some capacity in the military and are working in some capacity in the architect, engineering, construction, and development industry. So we hope that you will pass this along. There are a lot of issues going on in the transition of off active duty into the private sector. And while we can't solve all of those and we aren't the cure for PTSD, the one thing we do know we can do is educate people on opportunity. Our industry is growing. There is no lack of job opportunity for those who are willing to work hard and maybe get the training that they have to. But I was just at a conference last week where the trends are just positive in the amount of work out there and negative in the amount of capacity to execute that work, meaning the entire industry has a labor problem. And while we personally and selfishly at MCFA think that that is our blue ocean strategy for our talent pipeline, more important to us than our own talent pipeline is helping veterans transition to meaningful work. And I'll, I'll end kind of my, my intro with that. I think that you know building building stuff whether it's public infrastructure or private development is meaningful work that's impactful. You get to see how you're impacting a community. You get to see the jobs that are created and you get to see the physical um, representation or the, or the physical product that we are working as a team in our industry to build. And in many ways for our public sector clients, rebuilding our nation's infrastructure. So we think that it's a meaningful career path for our veterans. We think that there's a ton of job opportunity, and we think it's a, a blue ocean talent strategy for a competitive advantage in our industry, for us and for you. So I hope you enjoy this. Most importantly, if you're finding value or you know a veteran transitioning that's contemplating what their next move is, please pass some of these episodes along if you think that they would be valuable. 
And with that, let's introduce our next guest. Welcome back to Inspiring People and Places. Today's guest hits on a number of different things around our mission at the podcast. He's a veteran himself. He's been involved in construction of healthcare facilities from an executive standpoint, and he continues to help veterans through the Semper Fi and America's Fund. Excited to share his experience and talk through his mission. And, and I'm going to just read this, this last line from his bio, which I think will set the stage. Uh, but Jeff's passion remains to help these great Americans to know their purpose and to live abundant lives. Jeff Plummer, welcome to the show. Thank you, BJ. And it's always great to meet another brother in arms, especially one who's doing what you're doing and still being engaged in supporting veterans from your new high ground. So thank you for that. Did you like that army reference there? I, I did. I appreciate okay. it. We, we, I think, I think we all want to help each other. And I think that's the beauty of, of the veteran community. And I think we all know that our veteran community faces a lot of problems. So I'm excited to dig into one, your career path and, and the experiences you've had, your leadership lessons learned, but also your, your mission. So why don't we start there and then we'll go back in time but tell us your current role in the organization that you're with right now yeah so i am currently with the semper fi and america's fund right one of america's highest rated nonprofits veteran nonprofits and i'm the senior director for business operations i've been doing that, that since covid you know i I started out in the Navy, did a few years there. <laughs> the Navy paid for college. So, you know, after four years as a midshipman at the University of Florida, I was commissioned, went to the fleet to start paying that back. Uh, started out as an engineer on a surface ship, got selected for aviation. So punched out of there, went through the flight program in Pensacola, which was really fun. But while well, it lasted, it just didn't last very long. My eyes went bad. And so I got grounded in. I had to make a decision. I could go back to the fleet, but I'd have to start over. But they said, hey, use your business degree, maybe. Supply Corps, Medical Service Corps. And my dad had been a hospital corpsman in the Navy and a pharmacist his whole career. My mom had been a nurse. So it, it felt right, right across decked over the medical department. So, you know, 27 of my 30 years was as a Medical Service Corps officer. Yeah, and so I got to serve in six of our hospitals, uh, including being a senior leader uh, and co commander at positions, you know, in two of them, a variety of tours and experiences in between there. And, you know, I had some interesting, in, in my last 10 years, had some interesting tours, all of which were flavored with the construction projects, which I think we're going to dive into a little deeper. But, you know, after command went to headquarters, did a few tours, you know, in D.C. at the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery, and then retired in 2016. And spent a few years at, in the private sector, four years at Accenture, which was uh, very rewarding and lucrative. Not really a drop off in intensity, frankly, from my last <laughs> 10 years in the Navy. I'm, you know, I had to travel a lot. I kept a crash pad in D.C. and commuted from Florida every week. But during COVID, it, you know, I sort of rearranged my mental furniture and, and decided 
to change course and try this whole work from home thing and to help a friend who had found it and was still running. It is still running, you know, Simplify and America's Fund. So, so I guess I, I would say that, you know, while I'm on the staff now in the last three years, I mean, my relationship with the fund started way back in the Navy. I mean, the founder, Karen Gunther, was a friend and neighbor at Camp Pendleton. She was married mm-hmm. to a Marine. Our kids went to middle school together, you know, so we got drafted, as you can imagine, as a volunteer family <laughs> into, the fun, <laughs> into the fund and never really looked back. So we supported it through our years on active duty. I served on the advisory board when I was in the private sector at Accenture. But uh, I love that I'm up under the tent now. It's given a lot of meaning to helping these, you know, catastrophically injured service members find their purpose and live abundant lives. Right. So I'm I'm actually really intrigued when we get into this later to to learn from you about the Skills Bridge program. Um, yeah. But anyway, that's an intro <laughs> of my, my last 40, 40 years. You've probably got a similar story. My, my head goes in a number of directions of where to dig in. Give us, give us the elevator pitch uh, real quick for America's Fund or Semperfy America's Fund, just in case anybody hasn't been introduced to it before. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the mission statement for the fund is that, you know, you know, we care for our nation's catastrophically wounded and critically ill, injured service members, veterans and military families. While the fund started out as a Navy and Marine Corps nonprofit as back in 2004, Injured Marine Semper Fi Fund, you know, the generosity of the American people over the years, you know, allowed us to grow and, and, and now expand to supporting all branches of the armed forces. But, you know, primarily we provide one-on-one case management, connection, and lifetime support, right? You know, our assistant starts from, you know, frankly, the first day of connection and certainly during, you know, the 2004 to 2010 timeframe, that was usually at launch tool, Walter Reed, you Mm -hmm. know, or hospitals where these uh, injured came back to, but then it continues for the rest of their lives. What we had found is um, those that meet our eligibility criteria, catastrophically injured, critically ill, our programs have expanded to active duty and family members of active duty because it impacts their service, right? But what we have found is, you know, there's a set of comprehensive programs that we've developed over the years just as a pickup, but right. You know, they've been proven and, um, you know, we have seen through this proven programming, uh, folks begin to deal with their injuries, their loss. Um, it's physical, it's emotional. And we've seen a lot of po- what we call post-traumatic growth. You know, there's a, there's a stage of post traumatic stress that you start to deal with. And, and there are some that have growth in, in this journey, right? So we've got about 20 programs under three focus areas, service member and family support. Transition is the second one for military to civilian life. It's, it's where our apprenticeship program lies that maybe we'll, we'll talk about later. That's great. And then 
And then the third focus here is integrative wellness, right? And we've got about 20 programs in those three focus areas that, you know, are a mix to provide this holistic approach, right? For physical, mental, emotional recovery. Uh, and it, it's a family, right? At the end of the day, when you spend this much time with people, you wind up becoming part of the family, the case managers or nurses that we connect them to that are on our staff wind up, you know, going to weddings and family graduations and birthday parties. Like this job will never end. Right. Right. Yeah. The mission, the mission continues, as they say, one of the things that you said when we first started is one of America's highest rated nonprofits. I, I want you to just briefly unpack the rating and why you guys are so highly rated. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you know, you can go to Charity Watch, Charity Navigator, some of these watchdog groups within the U.S. that rate and, you know, and, and rank uh, nonprofits, right? And, and if you just put in the word veteran, right, or military, you're going to get thousands of nonprofits that are out there. Um, but, you know, to have achieved, you know, an A-plus rating, we're one of only three veteran nonprofits to get Charity Watch's highest rating. It takes a lot of deliberate planning. It takes a lot of work. Um, you know, if you look at the you know the time since inception, we've assisted over thirty one thousand people, active duty veterans, their families, and invested about three hundred and fifteen today since two thousand four in these programs for these people. Now. So you could go in and see, you know, the ones that are rated highest at the top of the, of the heap. And there are differences in our organization to some of the others, right? And, and each one has its place and does amazing work. Like we're all partners. Uh, right. I, you know, what I have learned, you know, is that, and, and, you, and you see this, right? Some of them are focused heavily on fundraising and are very good at that, you know, with TV mm -hmm. ads and, and movie stars. But there's a cost to that, right? Their, their overhead is in the 20 to 25% range. You know, our overhead is in the 7 to 8% range since inception. So we're just different. Uh, you know, and I think maybe, you know, we have a lot of employees, 180 or so that we've grown over the years. That we've grown, you know, by a third since I've been here in the last three years. But it's because we deliver our own program. In other words, the programs that we have, and you can go to thefund.org and, and take a look at uh, those 20 programs I talked about, but, you know, we do it organically as opposed to others that may be really good at fundraising nationally, and then they go buy those programs. Right. So some of these other nonprofits that I'm talking about, you know, will send service members to us, you know. Or donate money to us because they know that, hey, I've got a whole bunch of service members that I, you know, bought mortgage free homes for. We put them in these homes, but they have so many other needs. Can you help them with X, Y, and Z? Here's some money, right? So, so we have partners in this game. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's not just us. And, and the, the country has really wrapped its, um, its arms around this mission in so many ways. You know, we have nonprofit partners and we have corporate partners, you know, the Home Depot Foundation, uh, Bob Woodruff Foundation, so many. I hope that, hope that gets to it what, does. You, were, no, I, what I you were it, asking. Yeah, Absolutely. I, I, I wanted 
look, the work is really important and I wanted to give the space to give a bit of a of an advertisement for what you're doing. And I think it gives people a flavor of uh, I had General McCaffrey on the on the podcast and he talked about, you know, when transitioning and and finding your your quote next mission, senior leaders have no lack of options, right? There's it, it's more a lack of trying to focus in. And he talked about location, vocation, and compensation and how, you know, location and, and vocation matter a yeah. lot more at, at some point in our lives yeah. and compensation. And I think it, it sounds like you've found that next mission and vocation to, to kind of continue service and, and making an impact. Uh, yeah, and thirty-one thousand veterans is pretty big impact from the organization. So thank you for what you guys are doing there. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's you know, it's a labor of love. So yeah, I, I can't imagine a, another way to, you know, kind of round out my work life. I could do this forever. Yeah, at, at this point, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's shift gears. Back okay. to you. You touched on you know medical service officer or medical corps officer. And your leadership responsibilities inside of healthcare systems or hospitals. And I believe you are involved in three or four Milcon hospital facility construction projects. A lot of our audience is working on a, a variety of projects. You get to bring the executive owner experience and eye. Um, yeah. Talk to us about some trials, tribulations, and, and leadership lessons learned from the owner's perspective that you can share with the engineering, the consulting, and the construction community. Yeah. That perspective is so valuable to us. Sure. Well, it, you know, as we go through life, things just happen, right? I mean, we like to think we have some control ever out of how things play out. And while I was pretty deliberate about trying to plan my career path as a Navy Medical Service Corps officer, the fact that my last four tours, all leadership jobs, you know, after uh, learning for 20 years, you know, the fact they would all be flavored with some kind of a hospital construction theme sort of just happened. The first two were somewhat by chance, the second two a little more deliberate, you know, somebody starts getting some experience, even if it's just minor, next guy up, they just say, oh, send him, right? But, you know, Naples, Italy was my first assignment coming up. I was a lieutenant commander in 04, you know, at uh, BUMED the first time at, at a headquarters tour, uh, serving for the Surgeon General at the time, and he retired, and I went back to the fleet, and my first administrator job was at Naval Hospital Naples. And so this is one where I take my family. I mean, what a great opportunity for my kids to spend first, second, and third grade, you know, and living in, you know, another country in Europe. But the role was as the first administrator in a new facility six months after it opened. Mm. So the administrator of the Naval Hospital in Naples before me had been there for construction and the move-in. So my experience was to enjoy the operations <laughs> of, of a brand new facility, right? Which I found is probably not as glamorous as one might think. I mean, the punch list never ends. Yeah, it, I, they gave me a big punch <laughs> list, and and especially with a mixed U.S. Italian design, U.S. Italian equipment, and engineering systems. Let's just say that tool came with many things to keep me busy. 
I spent a lot of time in my uh, department head for facilities, right? The, the head lead engineer's office, because we had to get through the joint commission inspection processes that is typical for U.S. hospitals, the military hospitals, even overseas, follow the same criteria, right? So we had environment of care inspections. We had our life safety inspections, training for the new staff on the new systems. Half of my engineering department were Italian local local nationals. So, so a lot of interesting things about that tour, but it it piqued my interest in the area of, of construction, design, and engineering systems. So I, you know, I was an engineer on a surface ship, so I at least knew the language. But in that first tour, you know, one of the most unique things, to be honest with you, associated with that site was the fact that in the 1990s, they were doing the pre-construction land clearing for this new base that was built. The hospital was one of the tenants, if you will, of the base. They discovered all these Etruscan caves, tombs, ancient artifacts, if you will, that spanned now after the fact roughly two to 7,000 years. So, So you might imagine, you know, people came down from Rome with toothbrushes and, and the delays began. So fast forward to opening of the hospital and the commissary was just across the street. So now one of the things we had to deal with in this facility was running a museum because the ability to stay on footprint and put that building where we needed to required that we build a museum-like floor, a, a glass floor over certain parts of the facility where these caves and tombs were. And, uh, you know, the Italians were allowed to come and see these and the public. So, you, you know, wow. you had to pay attention to things I wouldn't think about that were not in the Joint Commission standards, like, uh, you know, the dehumidification underneath this glass, the lighting that you had to have. So there were interesting things about that first tour. That I, I will tell you <laughs> that, you know, you go across the street, the commissary and on the cereal aisle between aisle three and four was a huge 25 foot uh, glass floor, you know, museum like of this amazingly restored uh, Roman well. And uh, so, anyway, that's pretty good, wild. Yeah, good, good first tour. You don't know what you're going to get into when you have these experiences. And uh, it was, that was my first experience with that construction like realm, if you will. Yeah. And then from there, you went. Yeah. Was it construction in Iraq? Well, yeah, that's right. So I had an OIC job in Pensacola, actually, at Whiting Field with the pilots who trained. I was head of the clinic there. We got uh, selected for promotion to 06 and uh, went on a deployment. So so I spent, you know, most of 2008 and part of 2009 as the deputy director for health affairs on the joint staff at Minsticky, the Multinational Security and Transition Command. So my boss was actually a joint staff. My boss was an Army 06 physician, ER doc, uh, Colonel John Powell, salt of the earth guy, a real battle buddy. And we had a lot in common. I even had him promote me to 06 a couple of years later when we were, That's back, pretty cool. when we were back state. So yeah, but so the location, you know, was the IZ. The team was 15 or so Army, Navy, Air Force medical staff, 68 whiskeys, right? Medics independent medics from, from the Air Force, IDMTs. We had, you know, an army logistician or two, 
I had an interesting officer, an Air Force Medical Service Corps officer with experience in health facility architecture, which was unique. But she she was really important to us building what what, what became the first inpatient hospital for the new Iraqi medical department, the new Iraqi army. Wow. So during that tour, we were building medical clinics, dental clinics, medical warehouses, schoolhouses to train, you know, in medical um, topics, if you will, all across the country. But that inpatient hospital in Baghdad, just between us and the IZ and and Sadr City, was really a a key project, right, Um, to help them provide an inpatient facility where Iraqi soldiers would medevac back to for surgery, recovery after injury, because uh, they didn't have that at the time. So you can imagine the issues associated with that environment. Not to mention I'm taking a team over there, you know, every day outside the wire in Sadr City, not the safest place, but and it was on an Iraqi base. We had, you know, one half of an old airstrip, an old tarmac there where the hospital was built. But, you know, just simple medical things like backup power, infection control, you know, that no AC in this building, except for the OR suites, which are connex boxes, you know, retrofitted by the coalition mm-hmm. that would connect to the building. So a, a huge challenge, but we had a lot of resources and we had Navy, Army and Air Force, you know, civil engineers to tap into to help solve problems. So again, you know, a different, unique environment, but if you have resources, a plan, and know how to communicate, um, you can get things done, even in that that type of environment, right? We were there for the opening, covered nationally or internationally by Reuters, even brought the Minister of Defense. So MOD came over for the for the grand opening, you know, a British style band. Most of the Iraqi medical department is all in the British model because of an occupation, if you will, you know, of that area. So they were all trained in the British model. So the, the unique looking environment there for what was a, an important uh, ribbon cutting and opening of that first Iraqi inpatient military hospital. That's pretty cool. And then you said that the first two were kind of incidental and then maybe the, the next the next projects you got involved in were intentional because you had gotten that experience. So you yeah. you kind of got exposed to administration and, and administration dealing with the, the built environment and the construction and engineering issues that go on in projects. Right. Where did the Navy send you next? So go back to Pensacola, pack up, promote to 06, and I go out to my hospital exo tour at Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton. You're actually the commander of the deployable hospital, uh, which is just the staff when you are the exo. But this is the one project that I think from an engineering architecture and construction point of view was worth talking about. And, and, And I'm kind of an old school cubby guy. So for this C story, uh, on the project, I want to start with the end in mind. All right, so I was there 2010 to 2012. But here's the headline in the fall of 2013. All right. The Clark McCarthy joint venture team delivered to the Navy a $456 million Naval Hospital at Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton, a 1 million square foot facility 
completed in six months ahead of schedule and at $100 million under budget. Wow. And, you know, now how often do you hear something like that in government construction? Right? It, it, right now, you hear all of the opposite in, in any construction. Uh, but yes, government constructions. Yeah. That's impressive. Well, and it, and it happened through a turnkey design procurement and delivery method. So let's rewind a little bit back to 2010 for a little bit of the, the why and the how, right? I get there, I'm the second in command. They hand me this little collateral. Instead, in addition to running, you know, a hospital, 2,500 staff, and, and, and oh, by the way, yeah, we still have wounded coming back and there's a lot of things going on in Southern California, but here's a collateral duty. You're the liaison between this uh, current staff and the project team. Uh, this joint venture, Clark McCarthy, you know, NAVFAC, uh, Navy Facilities Engineering Command Southwest project team. This was DOD Healthcare's first ever design build contract, hmm. right? Opposed as opposed to that traditional design bid Good. build method, right? Okay, so you, as industry people, you know what this means, right? So, in my view, from the experience, this design build approach really brings a strong impact in the healthcare setting. You know, traditionally design bid build. You, you go out, you get an RFP on the street to solicit designs. You go through the typical government bidding process. You select a contractor, plan, execute the project. Hell, by the time the facility is delivered, you know, the design's 10 years old. Well, for administrative buildings, maybe okay, but I mean, healthcare is moving so fast today, uh, accelerating. Uh, technology alone is doubling like capability every five years. So in this design build approach, you know, the design came to us as a project team, as a staff, because we got to participate and it was at 30%, right? So the joint venture team created a true partnership with us, the project team and the current hospital staff. Uh, and, you know, we had rhythms of meetings where they would bring to us a set of the plans for a space that was coming up in two months, run it by the staff. What do you think? What do you know? And, and so we would put together these meetings. And, and here's a good example of just one example among dozens that happened. So we're on a Marine Corps base. Uh, Marines do two things, right? They, they, they break bones and they make babies, right? So we got a lot. Of, we got a lot of orthopedic. We got a lot of orthopedic surgeons, and we got a, a robust OBGYN service. But but in the orthopedic services, you know, there's a lot of pain management, and the pain management clinics usually run by anesthesiologists. So we had this suite up near the OR for the pain management clinic, where Marines could come in, deal with their pain, see a provider, head them out the door. Well, what they recognized is that, hey, the way this design is with these walls and the infection control spaces, you know, uh, as an anesthesiologist, I, I've, I've got folks I'm managing in the OR spaces. You could run three to four ORs at a time. Plus, I'm seeing some outpatient clinic maybe at the same time. And the design on, on paper was that they had to go across the uh, infection control line to go out to see a patient in those exam rooms. And, and so the amount of time to come back in, change your scrubs, have to wash up again. You can't walk right back in and go and check on a patient in an OR. So we spent about a day 
playing with the, you know, they had this cool BIM model, but playing with the doors and the exam rooms and the walls, and we were able to eliminate a problem before it happened that would have been, you know, major delays and cost overruns by just making asking the anesthesiologist, how could they do both, right? Mm. And that's just one example, BJ, you know, dozens of opportunities to get it right along the way when you're talking to the the receiver, the owner, if you will, of this incredible facility capability, right? Well, and and maybe you can help us with this. There's When there's so many different stakeholders in a healthcare facility, getting them on the same page or getting them to be responsive, because like you said, you've got a day-to-day mission going on that is delivering healthcare. Yeah. Getting those folks bought in, getting those conversations facilitated between the the stakeholder, you as the the leadership team, NAVFAC as the construction agent and the general contractor, you know, sounds easy enough once or twice, but you've got a lot of these decisions being made. Any any lessons that you can advise other owners that you took from that in in getting buy-in and getting that participation and and a sense of uh, buy-in to the project? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I tried to plant myself in Roberto Gonzalez's, you know, the uh, joint venture project manager's office uh, more than once a week and find out the things that were coming up. And, and we could plan the, the project planning uh, resources are incredible in your world. Um, yeah. But there was nothing more important than that hour or two each week for us to talk about what the next three things on the list were, because I had to go back, you know, in a place that's still operating every day. um, I had to go back and make sure I could get the input I needed from the right people in the shortest amount of time. So if we're planning a, a design review session for two weeks from now, uh, you know, we have a lot of work to do between now and that two weeks to make sure I can only I only pull those you know five or six providers and nurses out for an hour. You know, you know at this at their salaries an hour for eight six people and that's a lot of money. So yeah, so you know I think you know face to face conversations, uh, in a deliberate way were were key to this. Um, and we got to learn things about our new facility before it showed up that we didn't know through these face-to-face conversations. Just, just the the things that we were reading about in the newspaper, we were learning about it, what, what it meant to our work mm. uh, in real time. So the, an example is some of the design goals, right? The design goal was to create a world-class, you know, a landmark facility fitting of this prominent site, you know, right on the I-5. It's a landmark uh, overlooking the Pacific Ocean with, you know, a reflection of the time, you know, the timeless values of the Navy and the Marine Corps. While it's still an evidence-based best practice in healthcare model. Uh, and, oh, by the way, they wanted to achieve LEED gold certification at the same time, which is kind of aggressive or <laughs> aspirational for state of the Art Hospital is running around the clock, but they told us those stories. 
they explain to us what these design features like the uh, green roof, the healing gardens, the atrium open to that, all these they explain to us what it would do. And, and so I can't emphasize it more enough the importance of these conversations with the customer. And, and I think this design build process allow, allowed for that. Like it demanded that. Like the project team came, came to us and said, hey, we've got two milestones coming up. The design is going to be what it is after next Tuesday. We need to talk. So it forced both sides. I guess what this format did is it forced, forced both sides to probably talk face-to-face maybe more than they would have made the time to do in the old way. Yeah. Right. It, it aligns incentives to, to keep the project moving forward and, and, it oh, puts yeah. owner, and it puts ownership on the owner to participate, you know, consistently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and to your point or to your situation, it puts ownership on you as the leader that's representing that organization to have your ducks in a row and get all your stakeholders engaged and, and allow you to, to, you know, juggle that act while respecting the operation that those healthcare providers are, are doing on a day-to-day yeah. basis. Yeah. Um, yeah. We ask a lot of them because, you know, the whole purpose of having medical personnel in uniform is to go to war and go down range, you know, and be along the side of those folks that are fighting and winning our wars. Well, they, do that by train their training is delivering the healthcare benefits. So it's a great twofer, right? Yeah. We've got a benefit that all these people uh, have earned in service to their country. And we have these medical facilities on base. And, and so that's our training ground. But they are busy. They've got to run, you know, a hospital we, in, in the American Western medicine way. And oh, by the way, put on your uniform and go train, you know, with the Marines. General Krulak said, I don't know if he said his quote, but I heard him say it. He said, no Marine ever, you know, took a hill out of the sight of a Navy corpsman. Uh, and I believe that to be true, to be honest with you. The, uh, and so we ask a lot of those guys. And so their time is very valuable. Yeah. Great experience out there for me. Now, I didn't stay long enough at Pendleton. You know, we, we roll through command pretty fast. Two years XO, two years CO. So I was there for the topping off and the uh, through the second of four floors of the construction, but then selected for command. So I shipped out to U.S. Naval Hospital Guam, and I was originally selected and tagged for 29 Palms, but the Surgeon General changed over and the new one called me and said, hey, we're building a hospital in Guam too, and it's, it's, you know, caught, it's going over budget and it's way delayed. So you're cha- <laughs> You're not going to uh, Palm Springs. You're going to Guam. So that's the best thing. That's a, that's a family pivot if I ever heard one. Yeah. Yeah. Guess what, kids? <laughs> so I got to tell you, it was the best tour we had and ama- amazing place. But yeah, that project was way delayed and over budget. And my task was to go there and finish it in two years. Uh, and just, uh, just about didn't make it. We had the ribbon cutting and moved in. I got about four months in the new hospital, but uh, you know that's the last of the four projects. It's 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 not as glamorous from a learning perspective as some of the others. But you know you can imagine that you know the finite labor force on an island on Guam, 
you know, they're just the, the main reason of, for the delay just didn't have the sufficient, you know, qualified local manpower. But, you know, you, if, if you go back to post-World War II construction, right, the U.S. has relied heavily on the H-2B workers as a source of labor, specifically on Guam, you know, mostly from the Philippines. But it's really a, a very unique duty station for Navy, especially for Navy medicine. I mean, there are island and government politics, you know, the territorial aspects, you know, of that location. I don't know if, BJ, in your time, you spent any time in the Pacific. I, I did some time with that in Korea. Yeah, so you understand, yeah, you understand this whole tyranny of distance thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to tell our friends, they're like, where's Guam? And we'd say, well, it's near a lot of things. It's just not on the way to any of it. Like, it's not a destination. You you don't go through Guam to go anywhere. Right. Uh, But there are some cultural and strategic interests there, obviously, where America's day begins. And so... The challenge of that unique duty station is that although it's a small community hospital, there's only two hospitals on the island, Naval Hospital Guam, and the other hospital is a public hospital run by the Guam government, a government at least back then. I think they have a third hospital uh, in place now. But that government hospital was always full at about 90% capacity. And because of DISCA, because of the uh, defense support to civil authorities uh, regulations, we were allowed to see patients in our ER uh, if an accident, if we were the closest hospital, right? So this small little community hospital had the third highest acuity patients in the Navy, second only to our teaching medical centers at Portsmouth and San Diego. Guam's ER was the highest acuity emergency room in the Navy across the globe. And our ICU was the second highest ICU because what would happen is we'd take these ambulance visits. They would come right into the ER, um, car accidents, heart attacks, whatever. We, we had a resuscitation a day in our ER, and uh, which, by the way, from a, from a warfighter point of view, is great training. For these guys to go down range, we would have young medical students want to come from Bethesda and spend the summer in Guam just to get their hands in it, right? But so we, you know, we have this high acuity place. We save them in our ER. We can't transfer them to the local community hospital because they're full. So we move them up to the ICU uh, and often have to, you know, uh, preside over these patients, hopefully to save them, and oftentimes not. Very unhealthy population in some of the culturally, you know, organic Chamorro people there in Guam. So very interesting mission. And, uh, you know, this hospital, there, there's a storied in history uh, of the Naval Hospital Guam. This was, was the fourth facility in the 120-year history on Guam. We were building one to replace the uh, 1954 facility and building it right next door. Mm-hmm. But obviously, you know, the World War II history, including the Japanese occupation of Guam for two years, and a lot of people don't know about. But uh, all, all of that wraps that location and the strategic nature of the mission out there into a very interesting experience.
I mean, fundamentally as a hospital project, you know, it just was the manpower issue, but um, yeah. Yeah. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified service disabled veteran owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. So before we got on, you said there's a lot of ships in the Navy, but none more important than leadership. You've had all of these different experiences. Any most recommended book in your library for folks to read on leadership? Well, I used to give out all kind of books to my staff about things I wanted them to read. There's one called The Power of Alignment. I believe Labovitz, George Labovitz, that I used to give out because it was important to, in that book, you learn about um, the importance of alignment to a mission. Something as simple as knowing your mission statement. The vision statement, what's the difference between those and how do you shape your organization, your group, your team because of that is uh, illuminated well in that book. You know, I used to tell stories to young sailors about things like mission, you know, you got to pick a mission statement that you can recite that, you know, specifically in the Navy, you know, we, we as a service, it's a distributed command. Uh, back to the days of, you know, sailing ships and Christopher Columbus. I mean, you get a letter from the queen that says, you know, go find the fountain. You take a picture, come back. And, and that's it. Like you're gone for a year and you got to be able to take, you know, a mission, some orders and execute. And so if you don't teach your people a mission statement where they can understand where they fit in that. uh then, you know, what do you have? Well, they got to come up, the sailors will come up with their own mission, right? And sometimes it's not in line with the organization's mission and, and you get what's called a loose cannon. You know, we used to have stack up cannonballs on the deck of a ship in a certain, you know, pyramid-like way so they wouldn't roll around and break feet. I mean, that's, a, so, so loose cannons can, you know, break a ship. So, that's a good book, but you know, I'm kind of a a mission vision advocate, you know. So any of the Covey books, you know, I was very fond of the 4DX system when it came out and actually brought them out to Guam to teach the entire staff uh, what it was like to to pay attention to mission, vision, and executing, right? The four disciplines of execution. So so any of those books obviously are good too. You know, for me, a, a classic lesson from all of these experiences, regardless of the situation or the environment or the obstacles that present to you is, you know, to have a model of organizing and planning to your work, to align with something. And there's models like crazy out there, 4DX, PMP, you've got them in your industry, right? And, and then number two, selecting the right people for a project, job, the task. And then communicate clearly with them throughout. I mean, it sounds so simple. I mean, and that last point is like not always as easy to do as it is to say, right? <laughs> I don't think it's ever as easy to do as yeah. it is to say. But you do those things, like there's a real high chance of success in getting something done. Yeah. Yeah. 
If you could have dinner with three people that are alive, who would they be? Alive would be my wife and my parents because I just don't get to see them enough. Right. You know, and both my parents are still alive. So I would cherish that more than anything. And dead or alive, I would love to spend time with Ernest Hemingway and Jimmy Buffett. You know, I'm a Florida native, grew up in Florida. So, you know, we just lost Jimmy Buffett. He's the soundtrack of our life. But, you know, storytellers like these guys, you know, you, you can learn a lot from someone's stories who in the Navy, we call them sea stories. So about half of it's true, right? But, uh, you know, learning how storytellers do what they do really is a great communication lesson for those of us in leadership positions, I, I think, uh, because depending on your audience or who, you, you know, you got to tell a story in a way that resonates with somebody. It can't just be Factoids and go do, right? So maybe those guys, that's what I can say today. (laughs) I like it. It's a great question. To to close us out, I mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, your legacy of, and, and this vocation that you have at Semper Fi and America's Fund. Just close us out and inspire our audience with a little bit of what you're doing and, and why you're doing it and why you left, you know, what, Sounds yeah. like a, a great career path in the Navy to a lucrative career path at Accenture to to back towards what sounds a lot more like a labor of love and and, and service. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of feel like, well, specifically in Semper Fi and America's Fund, I mean, one of the things I see most impactful into the life of these service members, and again, you know, our programming is focused on um, catastrophically injured, right? And we have we have some criteria there. So, you know, amputations, burns over at least 50% of the body. You know, there's a, long, a list of criteria. Hidden injuries fall into the critical illness criteria, right? And everyone that served, even if they didn't have catastrophic injuries or these illnesses, comes back with some. But specifically, these people, they need a little extra help. And so, you know, whether it's our apprenticeship program, you know, we run a 12-month apprenticeship program to assist service members in pursuits of everything from crafts and skills to trades and to professions, right? That might lead them into either starting a business, taking a skill or trade or a hobby and turning it into a business as an entrepreneur or employment opportunities, right? And 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 we... And there's a lot of these nonprofit return to work type programs. You know, they put an emphasis on the potential financial success, and, and yeah, which is clearly important. But we rather kind of start these guys by trying to place greater value in assisting them to find lifelong purpose, right, and to find fulfillment through the pursuit of this skill or hobby or craft or business or whatever it is. Right? We we approach it to help. Start with their why. And, you know, I've got a couple of examples of some graduates, but we're going to run out of time. But, you know, I, you know, I think the best, probably most recent example I can give you of what 
what seems to be proven programs, what's working right is related to one of our service members. We'll call him Sergeant Gabe, who lost both of his legs in an IED blast in Afghanistan. We were there with him in the hospital when he got back, watched him grow over the years. And, you know, 2023 is the 10th anniversary of the Boston bombing uh, incident. Well, last April, at the 10th anniversary, if you will, of the bombing at the Boston Marathon, Lester Holt from NBC interviewed Sergeant Gabe, one of the Boston bombing victims. And I can send you the link so you can take a look at that. But it's a heartwarming account of a friendship that lasted over those 10 years. What basically happened that day is, you know, after the bombing, the next day, the news was that many of these civilians had lost their limbs. Now, so what does our team do? Well, we've got all these service members, you know, this is 2013, that have been in our programming. They have experienced what we call post-traumatic growth. And they call up, you know, Karen, our, our founder, and they said, hey, we need to go to Boston, like, yeah, hmm. you know, and walk the halls and, and let them know you got this. So the next day, they're on a plane. They go up there and, and they start walking the halls and and talking about what happened to them and what's happened to these civilian injured. And so these friendships came about. And you hear a guy. You know, like Sergeant Gabe say things like, you know, he he's in a place that he's not sure he would have been in if they hadn't if he hadn't had that injury. I mean, that's a tremendous wow. state. That's a, tre a tremendous statement. Like, and, and so that's what truly embodies what we call post-traumatic growth, and and that's what our apprenticeship program. You know, I even pulled some stats for you because you've got a, a, an audience in the construction industry. You know, we've got right now probably in uh, cat three and four, these are entrepreneurs or people looking to join a particular company or business, you know, over a hundred in the 12 month program right now, 237 cat one or twos exploring trades. I asked them, I said, break that down into the construction industry, right? Right now in our current class, and we've got about Cat three and four, so they want to start a business or, um, you know, want to go into the profession. We've got about 31 in that group for construction industry. Pending service members hoping to get into construction industry, 25. 24 have graduated since the apprenticeship program started in 2015. So, you know, you know, I see organizations like yours or your audience, your, your listeners, you know, being able to participate with organizations like us uh, or our partners, Home Depot Foundation, whoever, um, to, to do things that are important to these great Americans, right? Without a doubt. How, I, I, we'll make sure we put it in the show notes, but how do employers uh, and maybe even investors in, in businesses get in touch with the fund to get involved in, in potentially hiring or, or partnering right. with these? There's so, yeah, there's so many ways to reach out to us. I mean, you know, thefund.org is our website. If they reach out to you, just put them in touch with me. We have a, you know, a, a donor relations team and a, and a new brand partnerships team that, you know, I can facilitate 
the apprenticeship program is is run by uh, a retired Marine Corps colonel who also runs our horsemanship program. He's making cowboys at a lot of these guys, but but there's opportunities to come together, right, and collectively wrap our arms around these combat wounded ill and injured service members and their families, and and that and that's in my opinion how we you know, as fellow Americans honor their service, uh, the sacrifice of that service, the sacrifice of their families, and, and most importantly, the sacrifice of those who did not come home, right? Mm. Uh, because in my view, this shows our nation's youth how we as a people value service uh, to our country. I can't think of a better way to, uh, to end the podcast than that statement. So, Jeff, I, I want to thank you for for coming on, sharing some of your experiences, but most importantly, for for taking the time to share with us about the fund. And we will put all of that in the show notes. Appreciate awesome. your service and appreciate your continued commitment to our veterans. Thank you, BJ. It's been a fun walk through fond memories of our Navy life. Look forward to meeting you in person sometime. Me too. Thanks, Jeff. Everybody, thanks so much for listening. If you're getting value out of this, if you know somebody who might want to get involved in the fund, take a look at the show notes, share our information, share the podcast with your networks. We appreciate it. And until next time, have a great week and a great weekend. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.